A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this series on anti-Semitism is sponsored by the Tura Graduate School of Jewish Studies, a leading academic program in Jewish studies that equips students with the tools to search out their own unique path into the study of Jewish history and scholarship. Based in Midtown Manhattan, the, to- the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies provides students a supportive environment and personal attention from world-class faculty, seminary-style courses, one-on-one mentorship opportunities, and career advancement guidance. Students can study in person or do the program online from anywhere in the world, Tura Graduate School of Jewish Studies has produced outstanding leaders in Chinuch, academia, and Jewish communal service for more than 40 years. The Tura University Graduate School of Jewish Studies offers a Master's of Arts degree in Jewish Studies with concentrations in Jewish history, Jewish education, a Doctorate of Philosophy degree in Jewish history, literature, and thought. The Master of Arts program includes in-person, remote, and hybrid options. Each program consists of a rigorous, well-structured curriculum in which students are able to discuss and debate ideas and delve into challenging texts with professors and with passionate, accomplished peers. The Master of Arts History courses with emphasis in medieval and modern Jewish history, literature, and thought offer a thorough and thoughtful look at the lives and ideas of Jews over the past millennium, and the Master of Arts Education program focuses on effective classroom instruction and management, day school curriculum, and methodologies of teaching diverse subjects of Jewish studies. The PhD program provides graduate students advanced academic training in Jewish studies with an emphasis upon the intellectual, cultural, literary, social, and political history of the Jewish people over the past millennium. Study with world-renowned scholars at the Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including Dean Michael Schmidman and Professor Schneer Lyman, Judith Bleich, Jeffrey Wolf, Susan Weissman, and Dana Fishkin, among other respected experts. For more information on admission to the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including scholarship opportunities, please visit gsjs.turo.edu or call 212-463-0400, extension 55580. And that sounds so enticing that I myself, uh, maybe I should go and get some education. Um, and I'm very happy to do this series together with the Turo School of Graduate Studies. And um, the um, 
the the, the this is going to be about anti-Semitism, which surprisingly we haven't covered yet. So we're going to try to do a three-part series on the history of anti-Semitism. A bit of a general overview, but I'm going to focus on modern anti-Semitism. Modern anti-Semitism is, of course, a product of the 19th century, um, and as it relates to nationalism specifically, the rise of nationalism and how that feeds into modern anti-Semitism in the 19th century and early 20th centuries, but I'm going to try to do from before that as well. Um, I want to project a little bit what I'm going to do for this uh, three-part series. Part one today, I'm going to try to give an overview of anti-Semitism, the history of anti-Semitism over the millennia, um, and how it's been expressed in different ways at different times. That will be today's goal. I hope to achieve it. Um, the part two, which will follow in a couple of days, I'm going to focus on the nexus between the na- between nationalism, the rise of modern nationalism in Europe specifically, and modern anti-Semitism, as it's referred to, in the 19th century, and of course also the Jewish responses to that. How do how do the Jews of Europe deal with modern anti-Semitism as opposed to the old anti-Semitism, which was a more religious base, which we'll get to. So uh, uh, part two is going to be the focus on nationalism and modern anti-Semitism in the 19th century and the Jewish responses to that. And then part three, which will follow a few days later, which will discuss um, racial anti-Semitism. And that leads, of course, into Nazi-era anti-Semitism. And then once we're talking about the Nazi anti-Semitism, we'll cover some of the more modern uh 20th century stuff as well, Soviet-era anti-Semitism, especially in the later Stalin years, um, anti-Semitism in the United States in the 20th century, um, in general in the post-war era, how anti-Semitism expresses itself, and then you come to some more modern trends, radical Islam, Palestinian nationalism, and the so-called new anti-Semitism, that's something of the 21st century, so that's not history, so I hope to not really uh, talk about that too much, but I, I just like the title. It's the, 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 the new name we gave to it, New Anti-Semitism, because the old one wasn't good enough, so now we have a new version. Either way, part one today will present an incomplete, long view and, you know, a brief, uh, again, like I said, incomplete overview of the... Um, phenomenon of anti-Semitism, or Jew hatred, I should say. Anti-Semitism is a misleading term, so we can call it Jew hatred, or hatred of the Jewish people, or um, hatred of Jews, or hatred of Judaism, things like that. We can give it any any more technical title we want throughout history. And then parts two and three, will, like I said, we'll delve more into the details uh, a little bit of a, more of a deep dive into modern anti-Semitism, radical, I'm um, sorry, racial anti-Semitism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, naturally, in the story of anti-Semitism, there's a huge body of research, unlike many subjects that we do here that, you know, uh, we could, that we break ground right here on the, on the Jewish History Soundbites podcast, but here there's, it's enormous. You can't even begin to scratch the surface of the material the resources, it, it's, 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 the scope of it is, is mind-boggling. Thousands of books and articles and lectures in many, many different languages. 
And obviously this uh, podcast doesn't pretend to uh, even try to cover it all. Just get a little little bit of an overview and a little bit of a perspective as it might be relevant uh, for us uh, listeners of Jewish History Soundbites and give a little bit of an angle here. Um, So there's the terminology and a lot of it is semantics, but sometimes semantics is important. And and with anti-Semitism, first of all, the actual term anti-Semitism, which is a relatively modern term, not only that, but if we use it, that means we adopted the anti-Semites term, because they're the ones who made it up. Jews didn't make it up. So, and then is is it one word? Is it anti-Semitism? Is it two words? Is it two words with a hyphen? Is it supposed to be capitalized? Is it not capitalized? And these are apparently hugely important questions. Um, and there's huge debates going on. And I don't even know where it's holding. Am I supposed to write it with a hyphen, without a hyphen, capitalized, one word, two words? So I hope I get it right. But many take issue with the term itself. It's a product of the mid to late 19th century in Germany by people like Wilhelm Marr and others. Um, uh, Names aren't that important, but a bunch of uh, several German anti-Semites of the mid to late 19th century are supposedly the ones who came up with both modern anti-Semitism and the actual term itself. Um... Until then, it existed in the world. It was referred to by many things. In, 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 in the modern, modern academic Hebrew literature, they call it either Sinat Israel or Sinat HaYehudim, meaning hatred of the Jewish people or hatred of Jews, Jew hatred, um, hatred of Judaism maybe, of, of, the, of, the, of the idea, of the religion, uh, but mostly of the people, Jewish people, of Jews, um, and that's how it's been seen throughout history. So maybe that's a more accurate term, actually. Um, and there's been quite several different types of anti-Semitism throughout history. Now, here's what I really want to focus on today, is that it, how it's been in different forms throughout history. And it, historians do this all the time. We make these artificial divides, um, which tends to lead to a black and white way of thinking. And it's not on purpose. It's just... Divides are just tools to help us understand history. You know, we call something the modern era, and before that we call not the modern era. It doesn't mean that it was really the modern era only from 500 years ago. Imagine someone living in the year 1500, and he crosses over the threshold of 1500, and he says to himself, boy, I'm living in the modern era now. Obviously, that didn't happen. So why do we call it the modern era? So it's just an, an artificial tool that we use to help us understand history. So... The same thing with anti-Semitism. We identify different forms of anti-Semitism throughout history. And then we kind of like overgeneralize by chronologically dividing it. That this time period, the main type of anti-Semitism was religious. This time period, the main type of anti-Semitism was nationalistic, modern anti-Semitism. Then we say later on it progressed, so to speak, to racial anti-Semitism. Now, these, these, these divides, although they're important to understand the narrative of anti-Semitism and how it develops and how it expresses itself, but really, many of them exist at the same time. They're not really chronological. Um, in other words, during the time of religious anti-Semitism in the, Mid- in the Middle Ages, you could also have racial anti-Semitism, which we'll speak about. Um, so, 
they, 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 they overlap. So on one hand, we like to generalize, we like to show and divide it up into chronological sequence to give us a better understanding of history. On the other hand, it's important to keep in mind that many times these overlap. And that's uh, kind of the theme, because it's not different types of anti-Semitism. Ultimately, it's the same thing. It's the under, same underlying thread. The Jew is seen as the other. And there's, it becomes the object of discrimination, of hatred, and that very often leads to you know, um, taking away their rights or lives as well, uh, denying them the right to live even in many instances. So the, the, that's the underlying theme of anti-Semitism, and therefore the expression of it or its form doesn't change the substance, uh, the substance of which, which kind of has like a unified thread throughout uh, history. But I want to go through the different categories and somewhat the chronological sequence. There's, in the ancient world, in antiquity, there's anti-Semitism. It's, we'll call it early Jew hatred. In the pagan world, um, in the Greek and Roman worlds, and even before, right, we can go all the way back to Tanakh, you know, Haman says this, uh, this, uh, this, this people is mefuzar or mefayrad dainam. Daseim shaynais mikalam. They're different. They're they're spread around, um, and uh, and the the you know things like that. So maybe that's the that's one of the earliest recorded instances. But then it goes to the Greek and Roman era, the pagan era, antiquity of Jew hatred, and that part I'm not going to focus on at all. I'm going to move straight to the. Second, more famous one, which is Christian era anti-Semitism, church anti-Semitism, or religious anti-Semitism. That's the Middle Ages. We'll call that from the third or fourth century, fourth century more, with the rise of Christianity in Europe, um, especially after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, but even before that, and um, that becomes a very dominant feature of European Jewish life. All the way up to the, the really the really real recent modern times. In other words, until even you know the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, after that, really, really till the 19th century. So you have you know well over 1,400 years of this Christian Church religious anti-Semitism in Catholic Europe, and not only Catholic Europe, but a, a Christian Europe. Um, and that is predominantly the form of anti-Semitism we're very familiar with throughout that long period of history. The modern era brought a new type of anti-Semitism. We call it modern anti-Semitism of the 19th century with the rise of nationalism, or maybe we'll say more accurately, romanticism, um, which is which either goes together with or is a different different than... Um, nationalism, um, which we'll speak about hopefully more in part two, and that when religion becomes, especially after the French Revolution, across Europe, religion ceases to be, ceases to form the basis of identity in Europe, and it becomes more nationalism. I'm French, I'm Italian, I'm not German yet, that's only the end of the 19th century, but Prussian or Bavarian or whatever it is, Dutch, um, and uh, Russian, uh, Russian imperialism, really, in the Russian Empire, and so that, um, um, and uh, that, and the Jew is the other, the Jew can't be French, the Jew is 
not not a true Frenchman because they're outside of society. That is more of the modern nationalistic anti-Semitism that leads right into towards the end of the 19th century, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, as racial anti-Semitism. Racial anti-Semitism builds upon extreme nationalism, takes it a step further and makes it about race, and that culminates in the Nazi era and the Holocaust. So racial anti-Semitism is eventually the ideology of Hitler and the Nazi party, which leads to the final solution. Um, And then... On the side, throughout history, you know, right on the side of, of, of religious anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages, with the rise of Islam, you had uh, Islamic uh, Jew hatred, which was not limited to Jews. It was any infidels, um, demis, people who are second-class citizens or non-Muslims in Islamic culture. But then in the modern era, especially in the 20th century or even the late 20th century, radical Islam... Um, has expressed a new form of anti-Semitism. And then we have, um, in the 21st century, the rise in recent years of what they call new anti-Semitism, which the old one wasn't good enough, so now we have the new one. That's on the extreme right, the extreme left. I'll be perfectly honest, I don't know exactly how to describe new anti-Semitism so well. And since it's very contemporary, I don't feel like I have the need to do so, as this is a history podcast. I would mention another category that existed throughout Jewish history. It's a completely different category, but I feel that it is a form of anti-Semitism as well. And that is self-hating Jews, which is a form of anti-Semitism, or Jew hatred. And within that, I'd add even another category, which I made up, um, of inter-Jewish hatred, of Jews against other Jews, right? Jews against other Jews, not only Jewish self-loathing or Jewish self-hatred, but Jews, one group of Jews hating another group of Jews. Why shouldn't we define that as a form of Jew hatred or anti-Semitism as well? Why do we only look at it externally, blame the Goyim, so to speak? We can also blame ourselves if we have internal Jew hatred. Um, You see it throughout Jewish history, unfortunately. So that's a phenomenon of history. You know, and and I would just to illustrate it, you have, let's say, where I live in Israel, you have sometimes people saying in the media or in politics, um, or even among in, in, you know, in some sort of public sphere, of some Jews saying to saying and doing things to others that had it been non-Jews doing or saying that it would be considered anti-Semitism, such as liberal use of Nazi imagery, uh, you know, accusing the other of being Nazis or something like that, that would be considered anti-Semitic had it been a non-Jew. And it's one Israeli doing it to another, then somehow um, it becomes more acceptable, which maybe shouldn't be so accepted. And we should see it as a form of anti-Semitism and, and fight it just like we fight all, all types of anti-Semitism. Um, now, I mentioned the new anti-Semitism, which I'm not going to get into, but one one comment, uh, just to, just to, you know, one comment before we move back back in history. It's supposed to come, the new anti-Semitism comes from the extreme right, the extreme left. It's related also to Palestinian nationalism and radical Islam. Um, and on that last thing, Palestinian nationalism and radical Islam, I've noticed people conflate the two. People mix them up. Uh, radical Islam and Palestinian nationalism is really two different things. Very often they cross paths. 
like we said, new anti-Semitism is all mixed Arangimish together. But uh, there are many instances, for example, just for example, that terrorists have been, you know, targeting Jewish lives, which you know is an easy argument that it, that's anti-Semitic. Um, were Palestinian Christians, so we can't blame radical Islam if the if the terrorist was a Palestinian Christian. However, if it's Palestinian nationalism, then we can understand it that way. So it's very important to differentiate the two. I just saw in the news actually an example it was just uh, recently. Uh, um, I saw it was fifty. Uh, uh, 50- Fifth year, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, of the assassination of of Robert uh, Kennedy, RFK, um, and his the guy who assassinated him, Siron Siron, is still in jail, still alive. I, I couldn't believe that. I didn't. I had no idea that he was still alive. The guy's serving longer than the guys at Shawshank. Either way, so this Sirhan Sirhan is is a, a Palestinian Christian. So it just it was in my mind that that it's important to make that distinction. So let's get back to the uh, making these uh, understanding how anti-Semitism developed, especially in the Middle Ages, and, um, um, and is it as clear cut as we imagine? In other words, so the there is overlap between various forms of anti-Semitism. They there could be nationalistic anti-Semitism in the modern era together with racial. There could be religious, together with nationalistic. There could be religious and racial anti-Semitism, even in ancient times, and often all three together. Nationalistic, racial, and religious, all existing together at once. Um, And I'm going to bring different examples of that, specifically from um, medieval Spain, which is in Spain, of course. It's the kingdoms of, of, of... on the Iberian Peninsula, the Catholic kingdoms, um, the pre-expulsion uh, uh, Spain, Jewish community on the Iberian Peninsula, and Aragon, Castile, and, and uh, all those places. And another example would be of Tsarist Russia, a Tsarist imperial Russia, imperial Russia in the time of the Tsars. So here, there, national, it's very modern anti-Semitism. Uh, very often nationalistic, especially among the people, and at the same time, it's religious as well. Um, I just recently saw something of Tsar Nicholas II, the last Tsar, before he's deposed in the revolution, but he, at one point, his government, his own government, um, proposes some sort of law that would make it slightly easier for um, some limitations on Jewish life. And, and obviously his government didn't do it for any intent on making it easier for the Jewish people, but more it would be, be beneficial for the Russian economy or something like that. And Nikolai vetoes it. Um, and he says, I'm transla- I read it in Hebrew, which is a translation from the Russian, and now I'm translating it from the Hebrew into English. So it's probably not the exact words that he writes to his prime minister, Peter Stolopin. Um, But he says to him, My inner voice tells me with stubbornness that I should not take this decision to make anything easier for the Jewish people ever. And I I know that you believe, just like me, as it says in the Holy Scriptures, and now he cites a Pusik from Mishle, right? Our Mishle, but to him it's the Old Testament, 
that Lev HaMelech Biyad Hashem. The heart of a king is in the hand of God. And and I believe that this is what God wants from me. You know, he sees himself as the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and God rules all kings. And he expects, and I have responsibility to God to, to be a good king. And by doing anything good for the Jewish people, um, you know, God is not going to be happy with me. So therefore, I feel like I, I have to veto this legislation that you're proposing, which is going to, um, you know, make some sort of law, uh, you know, take away some sort of limitation on Jewish life in Tsarist Russia. So the Tsar is expressing himself in deep religious mystical terms in this is the early 1900s this is like 1910 or something i forgot the exact year um and and we'd think that religious anti-semitism is a thing of the past by that time in europe and the thing it exists together nationalistic anti-semitism religious anti-semitism racial anti-semitism so though on one hand we'd think that it goes in some sort of chronological sequence um, it it uh, it doesn't necessarily do so, and there could be different types going on at the same time. Was there always anti-Semitism in every place at every time throughout history? No, there were places that did not have anti-Semitism. There were long stretches, and in fact, he had a place. Once he mentioned the Tsar in Russia, so there's a country that eventually was um, subsumed into Imperial Russia in the 19th century called Georgia, does not mean the place where the Braves play in Atlanta. It means uh, it's a country, actually, in Asia, um, which was part of both Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, and and Georgia had an ancient Jewish community for know, well over 2,000 years, a very, very old Jewish community. And until it was incorporated into Tsarist Russia, it had never, ever experienced, there's no documented ever, anti-Semitism. So here you have a strong, flourishing Jewish community for over 2,000 years that never once experienced anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism doesn't have to be. It's not some sort of immutable law of nature because anytime um, you try to prove that, the example of a place like Georgia, and it's not the only place, um, can disprove that. You could exist, a Jewish community can exist without anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, by the way, we, we can ignore another factor that was almost a salient feature throughout history that was always, almost always a component of anti-Semitism. That was the economic factor. Um, in the ancient times, it was the Jews, our money lenders, um, and it went along with this religious anti-Semitism of Jews are the devil and the Jews, um, you know, killed their Christian God and, and all kinds of religious accusations of the church in the Middle Ages, but also they're the money lenders, they charge interest, they're, therefore they're leeches on society, they're economic competition in the urban merchant class in the towns that Jews lived in uh, throughout the Middle Ages. They are, there's all this, there's always this economic uh, base to it as well um, that you see also in The Merchant of Venice by, by uh, Shakespeare, who never met a Jew in his life because um, he lived in England after the expulsion. But, um, but, but the idea that the Jew is this, um, this, you know, this thirst, this uh, moneylender, and then in modern, in modern anti-Semitism, it's the Rothschilds, the bankers, the Jews in finance, the Jews are controlling the world through 
finance, through banks, and that becomes a trope that is consistent throughout history, and that goes together with religious anti-Semitism. It goes together with um, nationalism, um, uh, and and uh, and unfortunately still exists in many anti-Semitic expression uh, till today. Um, so, from approximately the fourth century until approximately uh, the French Revolution, it's accepted to refer to Jew hatred as religious-based or church-based, um, there's a, an element of accuracy to that, that it is religious-based. For the, for the points that I mentioned before, the church, official church stance, but a more nuanced description is needed, description is needed to fully understand the complex picture of church anti-Jewish policy, because we're talking about over the entire Europe, which is a big place, and over a period of 1,400 years, so to look at a period of 1,400 years over a huge area with many Jewish communities, many different monarchs, many different church leaders and policies, and say, hey, this was all a, you know, just a very generalization. Yeah, this was all religious anti-Semitism. This is, uh, you know, it's very simple. Uh, that would be missing a lot of the shades of gray that exist within that uh, uh, context. And we'll start with Augustine, uh, St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries. And he um, articulates the official church stance that would be the predominant um, feature of anti-Jewishness or officially the anti-Jewish policy of the church throughout the Middle Ages. And that he said that the Jews should be kept alive, or at least some Jews should be kept alive, but they should be treated in a certain way. In other words, uh, there's this this keep them alive to prove the, the their suffering proves the church proves Christianity, and they should be around, stick around to see the second coming, to see the truth, and their their wretched existence under the church domination is again a proof of the of Christianity's truth. And therefore, there's this there's this philosophy of, um, you know, treat the Jews in a certain way, discriminate against them, but they should be kept alive. And also, by by nature of that same logic, they should be not they should not be forcibly converted. And that's an important point. Why? Because as the Middle Ages progresses, we see as the church dominance spreads throughout Europe, many pagan tribes were forcibly converted to Christianity as church dominance spread throughout continental Europe. The Jews were the only minority, and therefore the only other in society, in, in, in Middle Ages uh, European Christian society, who were not forcibly converted under this Augustine Doctrine. So before we even get to the church policies, the later church policies, which abandoned the Augustine doctrine and abandoned the official stance of the original anti-Jewish policy of the church as articulated by Augustine. And how do they abandon it? They go about expelling Jews, pogroms against the Jews, in other words, killing them, um, crusades, which, which murdered many Jewish communities, blood libels, forced conversions. So that's kind of like an abandonment or a shift away from this original Augustine policy. And it becomes more and more prevalent 
uh, in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. But even if we go back to the source, the very policy itself made, created a, a reality where the Jews are the exclusive other in medieval European society. There is no other minority in European society in the Middle Ages. That's a crucial point to understand because human nature is that we look at an other differently and you're looking at it in a very rigid class system where the Jews are the other. This was compounded by the religious beliefs held by Christians regarding Jews, which obviously added to that. And then you add the economic factor, which I mentioned before, money lending, the merchant urban class, they're protected by monarchs or local rulers because of their banking needs. Then we have the Middle Ages uh, anti-Semitism. I want to end off with one other example, and that is of Spain or the Iberian Peninsula in the 14th and 15th centuries and what the anti-Jewish policy was over there at that time. We have the expulsion order itself. Uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella expelled the Jews from their kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula, today's Spain, presumably because the Jews weren't Catholic. Uh, may have been related to economic factors as well, money lending, etc. But the primary reason was the negative influence an active and live Jewish community had on the converso community. By now, in 1492, in that time in Spain, for well over a hundred years, there was already a large and growing community of new Christians, conversos, Jews who had converted to Christianity. And because at the same time there was a very, very large, active, openly Jewish community, so the conversos, new Christians, however you want to refer to them, they... And, and as far as the state was concerned, as far as the Catholic monarchy was concerned, the Jewish community was having a negative influence on the converso community, meaning they weren't going to be loyal Christians because they still had interactions with practicing Jews. So the, the Jews, the regular Jews, needed to be removed or convert. They could also convert. And, and therefore they need to be removed so that the conversos can be true true. Christians. Now, in a broader scope, that's how one can view all of the major and minor expulsions from Christian countries and cities throughout the Middle Ages. There was a religious element that they're not Catholic, they refuse to convert, so they have to be removed from society, or they have a negative influence on Jews who had converted, or the economic factor, money lending. So the uh, the greatest expulsion in Jewish history, which is the Spanish expulsion of 1492, is also a microcosm of all the major and minor expulsions that took place throughout Christian Europe, primarily in Western Europe, throughout the Middle Ages. Um, now, in theory... Uh, keeping to the Augustine uh, policy of persecuting and isolating the Jews, but keeping them alive and not forcibly converting them is the original policy that 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 that, that takes place, and that has exists in Spain for centuries. But then the second thing that kicks in is eventually this religious fervor, this religious extremism. Christian, uh, you know, accusations of against the Jews uh, in a religious sense, uh, plus 
you had the the economic expediency, and that leads to expulsion. It also led many times throughout European history to pogroms, forced conversions, crusades, blood libels, ritual murder charges, and uh, and that's basically the story of well over a thousand years of relationship between Jews and Christians in medieval Europe. But if we take a step back, we find an even more curious phenomenon. We go 101 years before the expulsion. The famous or infamous 1391 pogroms in Seville, Castile, Aragon, Valencia, in what's today's Spain. It's one of the worst series of pogroms and anti-Jewish violence of the Middle Ages. Absolutely an awful story. And this was followed by a massive wave of conversions. Tens of thousands of Jews, perhaps more, it's hard to know exact numbers, convert to Catholicism because of all these terrible, violent, deadly pogroms. So what happens to these communities of new Christians and conversos? So we would think um, they became Christian. They're now Catholic. So as far as the church is concerned, their souls have been redeemed. They're no longer the accursed Jews, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. And now they're part of the great Christian community. We've saved their souls. Everything should be fine and dandy. But as it turns out, here we begin to see the beginnings of racial anti-Semitism. In the 14th century, 500 years before it's supposed to appear on, appear on the scene with, with the early 20th century racial anti-Semitism, Nazi anti-Semitism. This is in the 1300s, way before the late 19th and way before the Nazis. Ostensibly, these were Christians and these, they should be treated as such. But we see, we find, and this is well documented, that in Spain at that time, these new Christians, these conversos, these Jews who had converted to Christianity, or even their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, incredibly enough, they're not trusted, they're excluded from certain jobs, they couldn't marry old Christians. And officially at the beginning, at the early stages, the government and the church didn't initially subscribe to this policy of racial discrimination. It was initiated as a grassroots movement from the people, which is also a nice phenomenon to point out. But eventually the government and the church come on board. They check into new Christians' lineage back four generations. This is pure and evil racial anti-Semitism, you know, almost like the Nazi policies of the 1930s. This is in the 1400s in Spain. These conversos even appealed to the Pope to intervene, to no avail. So racial anti-Semitism exists in the 14th century alongside religious fanatic anti-Jewish hatred, alongside financial tropes about Jews. And therefore, we can't really chronologically divide these things, and there are many more illustrations of this. This is just one example. So we'll end off part one by saying we see various different categories of anti-Semitism, but many of them coexist at the same time. Many of them appear at the wrong places in history. And we will continue part two, which would be the focus of this series, this um, series sponsored by the Turo School of Graduate Jewish Studies. Um, and we're going to focus on modern anti-Semitism and how it crosses with nationalism. This was Yehudi Gabra Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigabra.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.